Please remain standing, if you would. Take your Bible right to the almost end, the book of Jude. Last book of the Bible is Revelation. The second last book is Jude. If you know, uh, if you've been with us, you know we preach through books of the Bible. And sometime back we preached through 1 John, and then we went to 2 John, and then after that we went to 3 John. So it was natural that we go to 4 John, but there isn't a 4 John. So we are in the book of Jude. See, Pastor, who picks these? Well, I just pray, Lord, give us some direction. It made sense that we just go into the very next book. Again, uh, Jude, only one chapter long, and I'd like us to begin by reading the first three verses. Jude, again, only one chapter, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. We can read that together, reading that out loud, beginning in verse number 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we're grateful for each one that's here tonight. Lord, I appreciate folks taking time out of their schedule to come to sing these hymns, look into your word, and I pray that you make that worthwhile tonight. Help us just getting started in a brand new book of the Bible. So, Lord, we're going to just set some ground uh, groundwork to uh, understand better this. Direct each word, man, help us. Well, thank you for it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, if, uh, if, if you've been around here for a while, you know that we believe this Bible is perfect. That's an old-fashioned King James Bible. We don't believe that anything needs to be changed or fixed or updated. Uh, we believe the God that wrote the Bible, originally perfect, uh, he is able to preserve that Bible perfectly. So again, we believe that. And you say, well, preacher, I don't believe that. Well, invite me over for tea and crumpets, and I'll take as much time as you want to convince you that I didn't always believe that myself. When I was a teenager uh, in our teen department of our Baptist church, um, we had a uh, youth director, and uh, he didn't believe in a perfect Bible. He thought they're all pretty good. And so he'd have us all read a verse. Most of us then were reading in a King James. And he'd always say this, now I'd like to read it from my Bible. And some about that just didn't sit right. I didn't yet have a conviction about a perfect Bible. But his idea of a Bible of the month club didn't quite sit right. We believe the Bible is perfect. We believe every word in it is perfect. But we'll go one step further. We believe that God even put the books of the Bible in the order that he wanted it. So, Pastor, that's new. Well, it's, I don't think it's new to God at all. I, I think there's a progression of thought between 1 John and 2 John and 3 John and Jude and then Revelation. Now, follow, and we'll get back to this in a minute. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation, talks about the fact the Lord's coming back. We read that throughout the scriptures, but our Lord is coming back. We call it the rapture. At any moment now, there will be a trumpet that blows in heaven. And all those who have been genuinely born again will instantly be taken up. 
Um, I thought that was static on the... <laughs> Do we feel better? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm looking at the speakers thinking. Anyway, let's get back to it. We believe that there's a trumpet, not that, but a trumpet that will blow in heaven. And we are going to be taken out of here. And so that's the book of Revelation. It really covers the Lord coming back, what's going to happen to follow that. But you know what happens in Jude, that's the book right before, is going to be going on before the Lord comes back. And third John before that, second John before... Preacher, what was first John? If you remember when we were in that series. First John was written that you can know that you're a child of God. Not hope so, not think so. And we found in first John, five chapters long, we found 12 ways that you can know that you're a child of God. Sometimes we talk to people, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Some say, I think so. You have got to have more than I think so. Well, I hope so. You can have more than I hope so. John wrote this, These things have been written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know, K-N-O-W, that you have, H-A-V-E, eternal life. You can have eternal life and you can know it. So as we look there in the book of 1 John, we were reminded that you can know that you're a child of God. But John gave us a hint already in 1 John that there would be people that did not believe that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And John called them Antichrist. That was 1 John. So 1 John is a warning that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, there will be some that flat out deny that Jesus is God. Well, now you move into 2 John. As we got into 2 John, it was written to a woman, not, and her name's not given. She was faithful in a local church. She was a kind, hospitable woman. And she was so hospitable, she was opening her door to everyone that came by. Even those that came by her home that didn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John wrote to her and said, you are not supposed to open your door to that kind of people. Now, follow the succession. John, in 1 John, said, Antichrists will come who don't believe that Christ is the Son of God. Now, when you get into 2 John, many of these that teach a false doctrine, denying that Jesus is God, will try to get into your home. And John says in 2 John, you don't let them in your home. Now, I, I, I hate for people to walk away from church and say, what was he talking about? A Jehovah's Witness does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You don't want to let them into your home. So I just like to argue. Okay, argue outside the doors of your home. Don't let them in. Don't bid them Godspeed. A Mormon does not believe that Jesus is God's son as no one else could ever be God's son. They'll say Jesus was a son of God. No, no, he was the only begotten son. So first John, John warned of antichrist that would deny the doctrine of Christ. When you get the second John, these who deny the doctrine of Christ are going to try to get into homes. Don't let them. When you get to third John, in third John, they're not just trying to get into homes. They're trying to get into churches. And in third John, we found that some in churches are actually trying to bring in a, a, 
a new philosophy in the church and keep the old philosophy out. He said, preacher, now we're in Jude. What are we going to find in Jude? We're going to find an open attack on old-fashioned Bible-believing churches. Say, preacher, is that really what this book of Jude is all about? Well, look there in Jude verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Why? Why do we have to fight for this old Christian faith, Pastor? Well, look at verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unaware. So now they've already made their way into the church. Look there in verse number four, keep reading. Crept in unaware, before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That's a long word. We don't often use it. It's a license to sin. So here Jude is saying that there will be those before the Lord turns, uh, returns that are going to try to make their way into churches and change what the church believes and change what the church practices. And that's what this book of Jude is all about. Look there in verse number 8, Jude verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers that defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. So again, as you progress from 1 John to 2 John to 3 John into Jude, the attack is mounting. An attack is mounting on an old-fashioned church, and he not only identifies the problem, but in this series on Jude, we're going to look at what Jude says needs to be done. When that's happening in your church, how do you defend your church against that? You know, the book of Jude, one chapter, 25 verses. It's only one of five books in all the Bible that is only one chapter long. In the Old Testament, Obadiah is one chapter long. In the New Testament, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. And this evening, we're just going to get our feet wet. Just going to start. Can't cover the whole book in one night, uh, though some might try. Uh, if you're writing a title down, An Introduction to the Book of Jude. An Introduction to the Book of Jude. Pastor, if we're just going to get our feet wet, what can we learn about this book? Uh, look first of all in Jude 1 and verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. If you're taking notes tonight, again, my title and introduction to the book of Jude. First, who is the person who wrote the book of Jude? That's the first thing if you write that down. Who is the person who wrote the book of Jude? Could I say this? Truth is always true, no matter who gives it. But it's always interesting from the Bible who God had to write down those truths. Always an important thing. Here we're told that this little book was written by Jude. And we would say, who's Jude? Well, you know, that's not nearly the easy question you would think of. Because this is the only place in the entire Bible where we find this person Jude even mentioned. You know that there's a lot to learn from the Bible by cross-reference. So when God says something in one place, you can often tie it together where God said something just like that in another place. A lot of Bible we learn by cross-reference. 
But we can't do that with this man Jude because his name Jude is only found in this place. You say, Pastor, we're up the creek. We, we don't know what to do. No, we get a little bit of help. That word Jude is short form for a longer name. It's short form for either Judah or Judas. Uh, just like uh, when I grew up, my name was Robert. <laughs> my friends now either call me Pastor or they call me Rob. That's a short form. Jude is a short form for Judas. Short form for Judah. Well, if that's the case, if this name Jude is a short form, there's quite a number of those in the scriptures that are named Judah or named Judas. Now, again, it's all information. I think it'll help as we get through this book. We know that uh, Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Judah. In fact, that was his fourth son. I don't think this is that Judah because that would be separated by over 2,000 years. The Genesis Judah didn't write this book. We are pretty safe in that. Uh, when you go through the genealogy, that's this man's son and this is his son and he was his son, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is given there in Luke chapter 3, and most of those people were in the Old Testament. There are several Judah or Judas, Judas in that list. I don't think it's any of them. Because again, those names were from Old Testament time, and this book is probably written about 60, 66 AD. Okay, pastor, you've ruled those out. Who else do we know by the name of Judah? Well, you know that uh, in the list of 12 apostles, there are two that are named Judas. The most uh, familiar one that we know in the 12 apostles is Judas Iscariot. But there was another apostle named Judas who was not Judas Iscariot. So some would say that this book of Jude was written by one of the 12 apostles. Uh, stick with me. Some say, no, no, it wasn't written by one of the 12 apostles after Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. We know that Mary gave birth to other sons and other daughters. Uh, there's a church in this town that teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Folks, that's not true. She had at least six other children. And of her children, one was named Judas. So some would say the Jude here is short form for Judas, and that was one of the 12 apostles. Others would say the Jude, that short form for Judas, is one of the sons of Mary. There are a couple other Judases that we find in the scriptures there. In Acts 5, it says that a man named Judas stirred up an insurrection. I don't think that was this man. In Acts chapter 9, right after Saul got saved, he was still blind and he went to the house of one, uh, the house was owned by Judas. Uh, one more in Acts 15, we find the Jerusalem uh, church, they, they, they had a big discussion. And at the end of that discussion, they sent back Paul and Barnabas with someone from their church. One was named Silas, the other was Judas. So there's a list of Judases. Now, you say, preacher, you haven't been too much help. Well, look again at Jude. And, and, and I know this is getting pretty meticulous, but my first point will make sense. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. God doesn't put anything in the Bible that doesn't have an importance to it. 
So whoever this Judas or Jude, he had a brother named James. Now, that would be of no value if we couldn't find somewhere in the Bible a Judas that had a brother named James. How many follow what you said? God's not going to put stuff in there that's of no value. Well, we can now narrow it down to two who are named Judas. Look with me, if you would, and, and I'm, I'm trying to walk you through Bible reasoning. Look there in Luke chapter 6. Keep your end in Jude. In fact, if you have a bookmark or an extra strand of hair, that might be good. Uh, Luke chapter 6, some of us have no extra, none, none, none. Uh, Luke chapter 6 gives us a list of the 12 apostles. There in Luke chapter 6 and verse 13, Luke 6 and 13, when it was day, he, Jesus, called unto him his disciples, of whom he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. So here's a list of the apostles. Verse 14, Simon, he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. That could be the man. Remember, Jude told us that this Jude was the brother of James who wrote it. So it could be one of the 12 apostles. Could be. Let me show you another reference you can get. Let go of Luke 6. Look at there at Mark 6. At Mark chapter 6. Here we're given a list of Mary's other children. Again, Mary, after she gave birth to Jesus, had other children. Look there in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. People have said this about Jesus. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of, so these are half-brothers we'd call them, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon. So another of Mary's children was named Judah who had a brother named James. I went through all of that to say the one that wrote Jude is either one of the 12 apostles or it's one of Mary's other children. Having said that, if you pick up a commentary, every commentary will trumpet one of those two. That's the only two they'll give you. You say, Pastor, which one is it? Are you ready? I have no idea. <laughs> you say, well, I thought you said we could learn something practical from this. Don't you think if the man that wrote this was indeed one of the 12 apostles, he would have said that? Don't you think he would have said, Jude, an apostle of Jesus Christ? Or don't you think if he was a half-brother of Jesus Christ, he would have said, Jude, a brother of Jesus Christ? Don't you think he would have said that? Watch what he says. Look there in Jude, again, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Could I say this to Jude? It was far more important than who you are related to, a son of Mary, or what your position might be, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To this Jude, far more important than who you're related to or the office that you hold, is that you are a servant of Jesus Christ. We put so much emphasis on who our relatives are, 
and what our position is. Do you know if you have the best of relatives and you, if you have the highest of positions, if you don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ to God, it means nothing. Many years ago, there was an evangelist in the uh, United States. His name was John Rice. Anyone ever heard of John Rice? Very common name. Uh, he had really, by the time I got my head screwed on straight spiritually, he was already a much older man. So he wasn't in his prime when I was trying to walk with God. But you know, John Rice had six daughters. And as far as you know, all of those daughters grew up and, and married men in full-time ministry. All of those six daughters had children. And so it, it certainly would have been a great thing if not only all of John Rice's children and grandchildren lived for God, but all of his grandchildren didn't. I wonder if there weren't times where one of John Rice's grandchildren didn't stick out his chest and say, do you know that I'm the grandson of John Rice? I'm trying to make a point. Do you know that wouldn't have meant anything to God if that grandson wasn't serving God? Or is that fair? Folks, it doesn't matter who you're related to. Hey, preacher, I, I'm the, the son of the prime minister. Well, I wouldn't tell people that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the nephew of the president. I wouldn't tell people that either. It doesn't matter who you're related to if you're not serving God. It doesn't matter what office you have. You might be the president of a company. You could be the pastor of a church. You could be the lead singer in a choir. It doesn't matter what position you have or who you are related to. What matters is do you serve the Lord Jesus Christ? First thing we have looked at is who is the person who wrote this book of Jude? And I'm convinced it is either an apostle, one of the apostles or one of Mary's sons. But really to God, what's far more important is he's a humble servant of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard the statement, every tub stands on its own bottom. You ever heard that? Anyone ever heard that? <laughs> no one. I must be in a different uh, business. Every tubs, those old-timey tubs, those, those white porcelain ones, they had four feet to them. Every tub stood on its own bottom. Do you know, you stand on the work that you do for God. You are rewarded for the work that you do for God. I have heard my wife give her testimony just a few times to ladies. And my wife has said this, although my husband is the pastor of a church, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to be rewarded for what I do for Christ. Therefore, I can't rest upon his labors. I have to labor. I have to serve. I have to get busy. Could I say this? If you're younger and your parents have a ministry for God, what's your ministry for God? What do you do for the Lord? 
And if you're older and, and your children are busy in the work of God, what's your work of God? This is just basic stuff. I say the first thing that we learn here is who is the person who wrote this book of Jude? And very simply, it's a humble servant of Jesus Christ. I give you a second thing. Look there in Jude, again in verse number one, because we haven't read the first half. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Second thing, would you write this question down? Who are the people that this book of Jude was written to? Again, who are the people that this book of Jude was written to? You and I know that some books of the Bible were written to churches. First and Second Corinthians, it was written to a church. Galatians, and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. Many of the books of the Bible were written and addressed to local churches. We understand that. We understand that there are other books in our New Testament that were written to leaders in churches. First and Second Timothy was written to a leader of a church. Titus was written to a leader of a church. We know that Philemon was written to a leader of a church. Pastor, who is this book of Jude written to? Well, it tells us there at the end of verse number, number one. It says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. But I suggest to you that those three words are to describe every Christian. If you're a Christian here tonight, those three words describe you. I know that many times when you talk about believers, we use the term, they're redeemed, and, and, and they've trusted Christ, and they're saved. Those are common terms that we use. Here in verse number one, Jude uses three words that should describe every believer. First one is sanctified. Second one is preserved. And the third one is called. Pastor, what do each of those words mean? Sanctified means cleaned up. Sanctified means set apart. Uh, you and I know that there are many in this world that try to sanctify themselves. And that's okay. I can give you a list. I hesitate to do it. Someone always gets offended with somewhere on the list. Uh, some people decide, I need to give up drinking. Uh, I, I need to cut off from partaking in that. So they're sanctifying themselves. Some, I, I need to give up tobacco. Some, I need to quit immorality. Some, I need to stop gambling. All those are an effort for somebody to sanctify themselves. But could I say, even if you live a whistle-clean life, you still won't get to heaven. It doesn't say, look there at Jude verse 1 again. It doesn't say to them that are sanctified, set apart, cleaned up. It doesn't say that. It says to them that are sanctified by God the Father. Do you notice the difference when you sanctify yourself and when God sanctifies you? Folks, the moment that you trusted Christ as your Savior, God washed you white as snow. God set you apart from all of this world. That is a supernatural work that only God can do in the life of a person. Well, how many times do we talk to people and say, do you know for sure if you die, you go to heaven? Oh, I think I will. 
What are you counting on? Well, I live a good life. That's you sanctifying you. Well, I go to a church. That's you setting yourself apart. Well, I don't drink and I don't smoke. And, and, and I, that, all of that is you sanctifying you. Folks, if all you have is you cleaning up your own life, you have no hope of entering heaven. But if you have bowed your head and trusted Christ as your Savior, at that moment, Jude verse 1 says, you were sanctified by God the Father. Praise God for that. Folks, we're all going to struggle with sin. We're all going to struggle with temptation. But that operation happened the moment you got saved. You know what the next operation after he cleaned you up and sanctified you? Look there at the next one in verse 1. And preserved in Jesus Christ. You know, we believe once saved, always saved. We believe that when you trusted Christ as your Savior, God at that moment put you into the family of God. God at that moment put you in Christ. God at that moment put you into the unseen body of Christ. You couldn't save yourself. God had to do it. And you couldn't keep yourself saved. God had to do it. Aren't you glad God did it? First thing, when you bowed your head, asked Christ as your Savior, at that moment, He sanctified you. Secondly, at that moment, He preserved you. But if you believe the Bible, you're not worried about losing your salvation. If you've got saved, you're in. Now, once you're in, it's important how you live. We're trying to answer the question, who was this book of Jude written to? It was written to believers. It was written to every, every believer who is sanctified the moment they got saved. Every believer who is preserved in Jesus Christ. But look at the third thing, and, and some struggle with this there in Jude, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. You know what a call is. You, you know when your telephone rings, <laughs> you answer it. That's a call. Now, some people don't want to answer the call, but this verse says Everybody that has been sanctified by God the Father, every one of them has been preserved in Jesus Christ, and every one of them has been called. There are a number of calls in the Bible. There's a call to salvation. But that can't be this call, because this calling took place after the sanctification, and it took after place after the... It can't be a salvation call. And Pastor, what's it a call to? Look at the very first part of verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Could I suggest to you, if you're saved at that moment, you were sanctified, set apart, cleaned up by God. And following that, you were preserved. And following that, you were called to serve. If you're a Christian, God has some kind of service for you to do for him. God has some kind of ministry. God has equipped you with some task, some ability, some talent. Far too many Christians are thankful that they were sanctified by God and preserved by, in Christ, 
but for some reason think the calling is something they can say yes or no to. If you're saved, God has something for you to do in the great work of God. We've answered two questions. First question we've answered is who has written this uh, book of Jude? It's a humble servant of Jesus Christ. Secondly, who are the people that this book of Jude was written to? And the answer is it's written to every saved person. No matter where they live, no matter what time element they're in. I give you a third thing. They're in Jude 1 verse 2. Okay, pastor, we've been called to serve, but you don't understand. I don't have the talents and abilities. Why should I serve? Well, here's the why. Verse 2. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Multiply. Could I give you a third question? What ought push us to serve the Lord? Pastor, you say that we're all called to serve. I don't think I can. Well, God says he called you. Preacher, what makes you think that I can? I think it's because of verse 2. Because you realized that if you're on your way to heaven, it's only because of the mercy of God. We have two words that sometimes are interchanged, sometimes are confused. I know that some of you heard this before, but grace, God's grace, God's grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. That's grace. You know, if we go to heaven, and if you're saved, you are, you're not going to heaven because you deserve it. You're going to heaven solely by the grace of God. So we go to heaven because of the grace of God. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. You know what we deserve because of our sin? We deserve hell. We go to heaven because of grace. We don't go to hell because of mercy. And I'm saying to you, if you can say in all honesty in your heart, I know that I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. That's only true because of God's mercy. That alone should compel you to serve God. But not only that, look at the next one, verse number two, mercy unto you and peace. Many, many of God's people would have to admit before they got saved, there was no peace in their heart. There was turmoil, there was trouble, there was dissension, there was strife. Folks, if in your Christian life you are enjoying a peace that passeth understanding, God did that. Preacher, why and how am I going to be able to serve God because you're grateful for his mercy and you're grateful for his peace? Then look there at the third one in verse 2. Mercy unto you in peace and love. Before we were saved, it might have been only a dad or a mom that loved you. Before we were saved, uh, many people thought, no one loves me. Isn't it good to be loved? Uh, I'm not talking a, a sinful way. I'm talking in a good way. Folks, God loves you. That's why Jesus went to the cross of Calvary. And uh, God's people love you. You say, preacher, third question, what ought push us to serve our Lord? And very clearly, it ought to be his mercy, his peace, and his love. We wouldn't be on our way to heaven without it. But I want you to look at a little word that kind of adds a new angle to this third question. Notice the tense, like past tense, present tense, future tense. Mercy unto you. That sounds like present tense. And peace. And love 
be multiplied. That's no longer just something that God did for you and I in the past. It says that these three things, yes, that we needed to save us, those three things ought now to be multiplied in your life. If it was because of the mercy of God that you're saved, now you ought to evidence mercy in other people's lives. If it's because of the peace of God that you are saved, you now ought to manifest peace to other people in their lives. And because of God's love, you're saved. Are you loving other people? This be multiplied suggests that Folks, these things ought to continue to be true. I've answered three questions. First of all, who is the person who wrote the book of Jude? It's a humble servant of Jesus. It wasn't important for him to tell people who he was related to, to tell people what office he held. He just wanted to be a servant. Secondly, who are the people that this book of Jude was written to? It was written to every believer. Third thing, what ought push us to serve our Lord? And it should be that God's mercy and his peace and his love to you, not only in the past, but continuing in the present, that ought to press you to serve the Lord in some way. I give you the last thing this morning. Look there in Jude, verse number three. Last question, if you'd write this down, is what is the purpose of the book of Jude? What's it written for? What are we to learn from this? Look there in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation. Stop right there. Do you know, as Jude pulled out his pen and paper, or his quill and parchment, or whatever it was, as, as Jude pil, uh, pulled out the tools to write this letter, he was going to write a letter about the common salvation, how good it is to be saved. He was going to write about verse 2, about God's mercy and God's peace and God's love. He was about to write a letter that would charge everybody up and get everybody, amen, glory to God, I'm saved. He was going to write a letter along those lines. Look at it again, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, he said, I, man, I was putting my heart into it. It was needful for me to write unto you. You know what he's saying? God changed my direction. God changed my plan. God changed my subject. If that's not an indication of the inspiration of God and the writers of the Bible. I know as a preacher, sometimes I begin with pen and paper or keyboard and computer. I begin working at a message and it just doesn't work. If you've ever preached, you know what that's like. And the more you preach, the more you know what it's like. And you're frustrated. And I can't tell you how many times I'm just staring at that screen. And I'm just locked. I can't go any further. Not the screen, me. I'm locked. And I push back from the chair and I begin to pace. Sometimes it's in here. Sometimes it's down the hallway. And I'll say, God, I'll preach whatever you want. But I've got to know what you want. And you have to help me. That's what Jude was doing. He was putting all diligence to write of the common salvation, how good it is to be saved. And he said, God changed my direction. What, a, what an evidence of the inspiration of the Word of God. Again, verse 3. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me. There was something that was more necessary for me to write. It was needful for me to write unto you 
and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You know what Jude noticed? As the church age continued, there were some churches that held to the faith, but they were changing. And they were justifying those changes. And it bothered Jude because it must have bothered God. And God must have said, Jude, you're going to have to hold that common salvation theme for another letter. And Jude, you need to address this idea about the fact that churches and those in churches, there is a push to change the faith. Pastor, what does the faith mean? In, in the Bible, the word faith means one of two things. Sometimes when we talk about faith, we talk about trust. For by grace are you saved through faith. And so it, you, know, I, you and I know that uh, to get to heaven, you have to completely trust the completed work of Jesus at Calvary. That's faith. That's one explanation of faith. Trust. But you know, the other explanation of that word faith is it's a body of all that we believe. Uh, keep your hand in Jude. Don't lose it. Just uh, an example. Look there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 I just want to give you a verse where that faith in that context, uh, we, uh, we hold to the Christian faith. Now, there are places in this world you can go to, they hold to the Muslim faith. Some, as we saw in Thailand, the Hindu faith. There are all kinds of faiths. Well, we hold to the Christian faith. Look there in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. The Bible says, watch ye stand fast in the faith. Not your faith, that would be trust, if it was your faith. He said, stand fast in the faith. Folks, our faith is not only the doctrines that we believe. We believe in a heaven, we believe in a hell, that's part of our faith. We believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three, and the one in the middle died for me. That's part of our faith. We believe in a judgment to come. We believe in a rapture. So part of our faith is the doctrines that we believe. But folks, another part of our faith is not just doctrine, it's practice. You know what? Here we, we come to church three times a week. That's just part of the Christian faith. We come and sing these old-fashioned hymns. That's not really doctrine. That's practical faith. In the Christian faith, one man marries one woman with plans to be married for a whole life. That's, God. That's part of the Christian faith. I'm saying to you, part of our Christian faith is doctrinal for sure. But part of our Christian faith is, is daily life. And what Jude was being reminded by the Lord is, listen, that, that thought of writing this letter about the common salvation, Jude, you can write about that some other time. God's saying, Jude, there is an effort to overturn the faith, to change the faith, to water down the faith. And Jude, that's what you need to write about. And he said, you need to challenge believers 
that they should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I say, fourth, what is the purpose of the book of Jude? And the purpose is encouragement to fight to keep the old faith. And I say, preacher, you sound like you're against everything that's new. That's not true. Uh, these are new chairs. I'm sure they didn't have chairs like that 300 years ago. We have a PA system. Most times it works. Once in a while it's fuzziness unless it's a blowing of the nose. I, I, there are some things that are new here, folks, that churches didn't have 100 years ago. We're not, we're not against anything that's new. Uh, maybe a hundred years ago they had outdoor potties. <laughs> Aren't you glad we have indoor ones that flush and it's all gone? I'm sure glad. We're not against everything that's new. But when it's somebody that's trying to push a new doctrine into the church, or when somebody is trying to push a new practice into the church, if someone's trying to water down the Christian life that God wants churches to uphold, that's what he's talking about. You say, well, preacher, how do you know that that's the faith that he's talking about? Look at the very next verse, and I'm not preaching on that tonight. For there are certain men crept in unaware. So there are people that are going to try to make their way into the church who were before of old ordained this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. If I could, lasciviousness is loose living, immoral living. That's not doctrine. That's practice. And here Jude says, you know what I was going to write about the common salvation? But he said, God changed my mind. He said, there are there are efforts to change churches from the old-fashioned way to some new way. And he said, you have to contend for that. I, I, keep your hand in Jude. Look over there, if you would, in uh, Proverbs 22. Proverbs chapter 22. Uh, maybe a good illustration is this one in Proverbs about this slow, methodical changing that some are pushing for. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 28. Uh, Solomon, of course, wrote this. And Solomon wrote, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set. We know back in Bible times, many were involved in agricultural work. So their farm was next door to their neighbor's farm and next door to their neighbor's farm. And Pastor, how, how, could they, how could they spot where their land stopped and another land started? They had landmarks. Uh, some of them, the landmark was just a huge boulder, and that marked the corner of their property. And that marked that, that boulder, it identified where their crop stopped and where their neighbors started. For some, it was just a boulder, a big rock. Uh, maybe for some, it was a tree or a tree line. Maybe for some it was some kind of a stone wall or a brick wall, something. Maybe it was a hedge. You know what he said there in Proverbs 22, 28? Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have said. You know what he said? Long before you were ever here, 
that landmark identified the end of your property and the beginning of the next one. Don't move it. Don't move that. Now, it's funny, when I was down in Bible college uh, there in North Carolina, uh, our church property went back quite a way. And uh, I asked for the lackey one time, I said, where does our church property end and where does the neighbor's property start? Oh, he said, we've got a landmark. I said, you got time to show me? He said, yeah, let's go for a walk. So we walked out there and he said, we got a, he said, we got a big orange illuminated sign on one of the trees. We, uh, you can't move a tree, so that's pretty safe. We walked, out, <laughs> we walked out there and he said, I can't believe it. The guy moved it from that tree to a tree closer. You know, he's moving the landmark. Brother Lacus, uh, angry. <laughs> he had words. And what was so funny is you could see the old nail hole on the other tree. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty, do you know what's happening? And, and, and I think if it's not a sign on a tree, I, I, I wonder how many people snuck out in the middle of the night and just move that boulder just, just a few inches. No one's going to know a few inches. And a couple weeks later, he moves a couple more inches. A couple weeks later, he moves a few more. And you couldn't tell it. That's just so minute. But you know, you sure could tell it over time. And that's why that wisdom there is remove not the old landmarks which thy fathers have set. I don't have to tell you that we're in a generation where this new generation, they don't have a problem about moving all the old landmarks. And there are churches today that used to have old-fashioned landmarks. They used to believe this old-fashioned Bible. Boy, they've moved that one. And they used to behold the old-fashioned music and the hymns of the faith. Boy, they've gone a long way from that one. They used to have great efforts to get the gospel out in their city. Boy, a lot of them have stopped that one. There used to be efforts to support as many missionaries around the world. Many churches have stopped that one. And you know what? Just as much as Solomon said, don't remove the old landmarks, because your fathers put it there. May I say to you that Jude is writing and he's saying, there are churches that are moving those things. Because people want it somewhere different. And Jude said, you need to earnestly contend for the faith. You need to fight to keep that old-fashioned landmark where it's been at long before you ever came. Pastor, I don't like to contend. Contend seems like a mean word. The Bible says that we're earnestly to contend for the faith. Preacher, why is it that some don't contend for the faith? I don't know. Maybe, maybe they themselves have moved, and that's why they don't want to fight to keep the old way they moved themselves. Uh, maybe some don't want to contend for the faith because they don't know where in the Bible it says to keep that. Maybe some, they don't want to contend for the faith because they want to get along with everybody. Maybe some don't want to contend for the faith because their closest friends have moved. And that puts them in a very awkward position to 
keep where the landmarks have always been and to stay with their friends. But your friends are going to keep moving. And you are going to have to, at some point, make a choice. Say, preacher, what good is accomplished by contending? Well, it salvages the house of God just a little bit longer. It strengthens Christians. It strengthens churches. It strengthens ministries. Some of you, I, I think, have... A scene is a really thick book called Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. Anyone seen that one? A few. It's probably the landmark book uh, explaining the differences that cults, Jehovah's Witness and, and Christian Science and Mormons and all that. Do you know that, uh, and I like this story, Walter Martin went to Moody Bible Institute, Chicago. He didn't have any tug in his heart to become a preacher. He didn't have any call to be a preacher. He just thought that would be a good thing to do, and, and that is a good thing to do. <laughs> at, at, that, at that Moody Bible Institute, at lunchtime, they'd go down to the city market, and they'd preach. They'd just preach the gospel. That was their way to get the gospel out to people that went and ate their lunches in the market and went and bought in the market. And uh, Walter Martin said, you know what? I don't, I don't have any tug in my heart to preach. That, that's really not my interest. They said, we still need you. And he said, what for? And he said, when, they said, when we go down to the city market and preach, there's always hecklers that want to argue with us and outscream us. And it's hard to keep up being louder than they. So, Walter, we want you to distract them. <laughs> he said, well, how do I do that? He said, when we're preaching the gospel there at that market, we want you to gather all the hecklers and tell them that you'd like to talk to them and show them where they're dead wrong. <laughs> he said, yeah, you will attract them to you like a magnet. And he said, you go at the other end of the market, and he said, all we want you to do is argue with us. All we want you to do is argue with them, show them from the scriptures where they're wrong. And he said, well, what if I don't know where in the scriptures they're wrong? They said, well, you'll learn it. <laughs> The first lunch hour, he successfully told me, he said, yeah, I'm going to show you from the Bible where you're wrong. And he said, I was so embarrassed. He said, they ran circles around me. He said, I was so defeated. He said, when I went back to the Institute that day afternoon, he said, I'm never doing it again. They said, oh, no, no. You helped us because you made it possible so that we could preach the gospel without interference. And he said, really? They said, absolutely, Walter. If it weren't for you, there would be people that did not hear the truth. We need you to do it tomorrow. And he said, I don't want to. They said, we need, and you know the next lunch, he did the same thing, but that night before he'd learned some Bible answers that he didn't know, and he threw that at them. And so they tripped him up with something else. Something else. Do you know that thickest book on the kingdom of the cults, was the result of him going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, earnestly contending for the faith. Say, preacher, what good does it do to earnestly contend for the faith? You make it possible for the gospel to go farther. You make it possible for the gospel to be more effective. 
you make it possible for Christians could be strengthened. That King in the Cults book, I don't know whether they're in their 10th edition or 20th edition or 30th edition. I don't think Walter had any idea by contending at the other end of the market that God was going to use him to strengthen Christians around the world for the next dozens and dozens of years. But by him contending for the faith, he's helped Christians, he's helped churches. Do you know the purpose of this book? Don't just lie down when someone tries to bring in something new. Stand for the faith earnestly contend for the faith. Do it for your generation, the next generation, and the next one to come. That's what this whole little book of Jude is all about. Stand for the faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us. Lord, we've really just got our feet wet in this new book. Help us. Lord, this is the last book before the book of Revelation. This is the, the last charge before Jesus comes back. Lord, in this little book, we are reminded that just before the Lord returns, there will be an effort to overturn old-fashioned churches. Lord, would you help God's people to band together and to say, it's not going to happen here. Give us some resolve. Give us some soldiers of Christ Lord, would you help us like that song we sang earlier, Onward Christian Soldiers. Help us, Lord.